0: Hello, Phil. Hello. Thank you for joining me this morning. It's my pleasure. Well, you uh, have a longstanding, um, let's say you've been uh, a member of RPG Zines for, for quite a while. And uh, you've posted quite a number of things. Um, I know also Eric Tankar has talked about you regarding you have quite a long history, too, of Producing um, of work all the way from the beginning. In fact, I would say that, you know, going through the um the amount of things and number of things that you produce and your way of thinking about pricing and uh and different models is is quite astounding. So how did you get started like doing your own stuff? Like what was the 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 early days when you said, you know what, I'm gonna put a thing out there for sale?
1: The absolute earliest days would have been the early '90s when I did some uh, fanzine creation, and then around '95 I had some of my first published professional work. So what was the, what was the fanzine stuff? Just RPG fanzines. I did a couple different ones back '93, '94, '95, around there.
0: So what was the what was the I mean, what was the subject of
1: it? What was the the particular? It was completely just random. What it fit my brain. Whatever the hell I wanted to write about, I wrote about uh, everything from minis to d to Gamma World, Car Wars, just anything and everything. And uh, that was back when most of that would be just mail order. You'd uh, yeah. share addresses and information in other people's zines and get orders. There's uh, an early Shadis issue from like 94 or something where there's a short little review of one of my zines in there and, uh, they included the address and I got a bunch of orders that way.
0: But how'd you come up with the idea? Was was there already a a community? I assume there was already a community that was established that you just became part of, I mean.
1: Well, uh, challenge magazine from GDW at the time would run little ads in the back, little classified section. And I'd be reading that. And one day I just thought, well, if other people can do this, why can't I? I've got a little bit of a gra- graphic design background and I'd like to know how to write. So I just, I just did it and kept going.
0: So, so let's, let's go with the first one. So you said, you know what, I got this idea. I've got, you know, Challenge Magazine was kind of a in-house uh, publication, but it was because GDW had a number of properties, you would have a variety in each, in each issue. So, so was the, so the very, so that was the concept. Was it, was the first fanzine around GDW stuff or was it all over the map? I mean,
1: no, it was all over the map. I wish I had a copy of that first one around here somewhere. It was two column, no real art. Just, I mean, it looked like something you'd make in high school back in the eighties, nineties, um, and I just—I don't know—I just did it, and every month I did it for about a year, and then I sat <laughs> down and did some other things. And-
0: so you, you yeah. did this thing. So you said, "Hey, I got this idea. I'm going to do this." So there wasn't really any sort of like path that you were following from other people, right? Oh, no,
1: no, there there was no plan or path. It was
0: just I have an idea. So you're like, okay, I got this idea, and the muse is demanding that I I I, I write this stuff. I just got to get this out of my system. Yes, and you start cranking the stuff out. So you do the first issue, um, and then it's done, and you're done writing it. You go get some photocopies. Like, what what was the plan? Like, how, what were your, was your plan to distribute
1: the? I mean, what was? See, you keep using a word that I never like. Rely on plans just get in my way. It's hard <laughs> enough. Like at the office, we have plans, and yeah, yeah. I don't like it, but when you're dealing with, like, dozens of people's lives, you kind of need a plan. But if it's my own thing, most of the time, there's no plan. It's just, what do I want to do? What's inspiring me? So I I printed up probably 20 or 30 of that first one, mailed about half of them out to different addresses that were in Challenge of other zine publishers and uh, got a bunch of letters back, and then some of their zines started posting, like publishing, hey, I got this zine, and here's where you can get a copy. So and it just kind of grew from there. Was,
0: was your intent to, like, get hired on for freelance work for these companies? Was that, like, kind of the I intent? I don't know.
1: I, I wish I could tell you what my intent was. It was basically just, I want to do this. So I'm going to do this.
0: Yeah, because you sent to 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 publishers. And that's what's kind of interesting. So it's like, are we just kind of like just sewing, just throwing things out there just to see what would happen?
1: Yeah. Just anybody, everybody. Uh, John Nephew at Atlas Games was one of the first people in the industry to really give me some great advice. Uh, Mayfair Games was super supportive at the time. They were publishing the underground and chill RPGs back then. It, I don't know. It just... I wanted to do it, so I did it, and I was fortunate enough that some people noticed and gave me their time and advice.
0: Yeah, that's really pretty amazing, really. (laughs) In (laughs) retrospect, you know, but I think the industry is pretty small, and I think they recognize. In fact. You didn't just do one. This is to me what it's interesting. It's not like you said, you know what, I'm going to do one. This is going to be kind of like a resume, but not a resume. It's like a proof of concept. He's like, no, I'm just going to do an issue a month. And I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if anybody's going to care. I really don't have any plans, but, but you did this thing. You know, you said monthly is what you were doing.
1: Monthly. Yeah. For about uh, just over a year, monthly. And starting with the third issue, and I went from like the staple in the top corner to actually uh, folding and saddle stitching stuff, started doing some art myself to toss in, and just I just did it. So this would
0: have been like really pre-blogs. I mean, blogs oh, were yeah. I think our thing, but they weren't really that big of a thing. Uh, yeah, definitely pre-blogs. So then that kind of explains, you know, for that. So then you, you started sending them out. And then you mentioned other zines. So, so what happened after, after this started going on,
1: an, a, you start connecting with other people doing zines. What was yeah, the- I, I traded messages like mail at the time, basically, <laughs> um, with other zine publishers and I would uh, include the their information in my zine. They'd include mine in theirs. And it just, I don't, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it in a long time. It was just fun.
0: And so you're, you're cranking along, uh, then you, you get feedback from people. And I think, you know, you know, as a creative, I mean, I think the thing we probably enjoy more than anything is at least somebody saying, Hey, I I like, or didn't like, or critique, or, you know, there's some sort of (laughs) interaction, which is, is rare. So you, you got interaction, you got interaction with other zine people. And you're like, you know what? Um,
1: so where did this all – where did it go from there? What did this lead to? I ended up doing some freelance work for a few publishers. I got a job at a agricultural magazine and newspaper. Oh. And so, so did this lead to that? It definitely helped because it demonstrated that I knew what I was doing in terms of layout and design. So – and then I did some self-publishing, some uh, small books and games, like just really small, simple stuff. And kept working at the newspaper and magazine up until about 99 when I answered a call from Steve Jackson Games for someone to do book design and layout. And I ended up doing that. And then they hired me late that year. To do okay. Whole. So
0: let's, let's go back. Uh, we, we still got a lot of unpacking. You're, there's a lot of stuff that's going on. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're glossing over, which I find immensely uh, fascinating, and I think I think to me is, I think there's a certain amount of truth to. You have to do a thing, without necessarily knowing what it does. I mean, you don't have to know, and I think the idea, but you have to disseminate it as well. I mean, you know, and so you started putting this stuff out there. You, I think, you know, obviously the the tools at the time, what we're you using for like layout. We're using like just Word and then printing it out. We're using, what
1: were you doing? No, yeah, I wish years? I had the software package. Oh, that's frustrating. There was an actual layout program uh, on DOS. I can't remember the name of it now. That's so frustrating. But it certainly isn't around anymore. I feel like I was using WordStar for some of that. that <laughs> That's totally a thing, isn't it? I'm not making that up. No, WordStar is
0: a thing. I think wasn't it something that would would uh, that was for whatever reason it felt like that was foisted, but that people really didn't like, and it ended up dying eventually. um, Yeah, sort of death.
1: Oh, I wish I could remember the name of the software now. Now I have to search for early uh, '90s desktop publishing software.
0: Yeah, because I mean, those—I think in the '90s, I mean, that's when like PageMaker was a thing, but that was expensive. Uh, that's yeah. When, I wasn't
1: using PageMaker there then. When I went to the um, newspaper, we were using oh, wow, PageMaker. Yeah, we were using Pagemaker initially and then moved to Quark about six months after I was there. (laughs) So I found a list of desktop publishing software. And I am not recognizing. I'm not seeing.
0: Well, it was a Wild West, right? I mean, there was a lot of companies, a lot of things. There's probably things that were kind of hacks and things that weren't. I mean, it really was... It was a lot less established. Even now, we think there's a lot of choices. But I think even in those early years, there's a lot of choices that were maybe lived for a few years
1: and then died out. Well, in the mid-80s, I was using the newsroom on a Commodore 64. (laughs) Which is a step up from, was it, uh, uh, the uh,
0: print? It wasn't one where you do cards. um. Oh, I don't know that. Oh, there's one that was a common uh, one that people would make cards of. It was you'd make and do like these ASCII graphics of Santa Claus, whatever. And you can do you could put out these nasty looking
1: cards back in the day. Uh, yeah, I worked on the school newspaper in uh, junior high using the newsroom on a Commodore 64. Uh, that was educational. I remember in college with an Apple
0: IIe, I was writing a term paper and I think I ran out of, it wasn't that big of a term paper. And I think I ran out of memory <laughs> writing a term paper.
1: It's like,
0: and I remember early on in the computer, I bought a, a, an, a I went the Amiga route and I, I think I got um, an Amiga 2000. I think I got six gigs of RAM or no, six gigs, six megabytes of RAM. And I thought, you know what? I'll never need another computer again. I have all the I have all the yes. processing power. I have all the memory
1: I could ever need. That was a very different time. Like my first <laughs> modem was a 300 odd modem. Yes, you you could
0: tell what speed you're connecting at based on this the the, the keep the, the the sequential uh, handshaking and squeakings and squawkings and the tone changes. Oh, yeah, was- this
1: is going to drive me crazy. I'm, I'm going to have to spend the rest of the day trying to figure <laughs> out. Was It I wasn't FrameMaker. It might have been FrameMaker, though. Uh, I'm willing to bet somebody has some YouTube videos of some of these old programs. And if I can pull those up, I'll probably find it that way by just looking and saying, oh, yeah, I remember that interface. That was horrible.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you've uh so it got you connected doing more zines you said you you did some did you say you did some freelance work because of that? Yes. But the question that I'm, I'm I'm fascinated with is so you said there was an agricultural magazine like yes. I that I, I kind of get it but you know cuz you what you demonstrated is hey I can do a professional looking product it wasn't that you're doing a zine on horticulture Right. But still, I mean, let's face it, uh, in those early days, being in the, um, you know, role playing games wasn't it was not just anti cool. <laughs> it was worse than anti cool. I mean, it was like loser level kind of stuff that we would. So how did you how did you get a professional job at a non RPG company? based off of an RPG product that you,
1: I just heard they were looking for somebody to do some pay step work. I had enough knowledge of what that meant that I could go in. And I just went in and talked to the owner and he seemed impressed with me and said, all right, give, give you a shot.
0: I think there's a lot to be said. Cause I've, I've noticed it seemed like in life, that we have a lot of choices. So if you say, you know what, I want an artist or I want a writer or I want a whatever you can get on the internet and there's an infinite number of people. Yes. But if you know a person or a person presents themselves, it removes a lot of choices. And sometimes it's easier just to go with something you can see in front of you or, you know, rather than, you know, and it's, but I think early in those years, it probably was less common and it was probably even more difficult
1: to find, you know, people. Yeah. You basically had to find uh, people locally to work with on anything like that.
0: Yeah. You had to put yeah. out an ad or ask people mm-hmm. <laughs> and the ad required somebody to actually read the ad. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> so you, you did this. So, so how long did you work with this, uh, with this magazine?
1: It's about five years just, just under five years. So, and I learned a lot uh, doing that when you work on tractor ads and dealing with uh, large chemical companies on their advertising and things like that, you learn pretty quick. Well, especially you're dealing now with a level. I'm not saying that
0: RPG products aren't professional level, but there's definitely an expectation of professionalism
1: when people are paying that oh, kind yeah. of money for ads. Yeah, it's dramatically uh, different expectations, especially at the time. I mean, when you've got a dealership selling six-figure farm equipment and you're putting together the advertising for them, they, they have some expectations. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that that farm equipment even today can get horribly expensive. Oh, yes. Yes, it can. Yes, it can.
0: Uh, it, it is amazing. Uh, the amount of money that's required to just, you know, even just for um, and now, it's not just the equipment. It's just all the things that go with the equipment: the software, the you know, whatever additions and modules. And it's it says um, a new
1: combine today can cost between three hundred and thirty thousand and five hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, a used combine can be can be as low as five thousand nine hundred and up to four hundred and fifty thousand. I'm willing to bet that five thousand nine hundred dollar combine is uh, really old. Yeah, it probably requires a horse to pull it along too. I don't think horse I'm not buy included. It. <laughs> Already got the horse. My horse. My wife has a horse, and she loves to ride. So oh, I just yeah. Need to pull, I guess. There you go. You can you
0: can justify the horse expenses mm-hmm. by farming out the uh, the the horse and the combine. The way the
1: world's going, I would be shocked if sometime in my lifetime,
0: that's where we're at. (laughs) Yeah, it's your backup plan. Things really go sideways. I got a horse. I got a combine. I'm good. (laughs) So you're going along. Everything's clicking. uh, You've got the world in your pocket. And then uh, so this company, Steve Steve Jackson Games, it's got obscure company, isn't it? In the larger <laughs> world, <way>? yes. <laughs> so, so what transpired? So, this is obviously. So, you're. So, we're talking. At what year did you start working for Steve Jackson Games? Ninety nine. Okay, so this is pre Munchkin. Yes, this is uh, GURPS, I'm assuming is the largest uh, seller for Steve Jackson at the time. Definitely. Okay, so this is prime GURPS period. Um, And so what transpired? What what led to you uh, going to work for Steve Jackson Games?
1: Well, they posted online. They needed someone to do some freelance book uh, layout. So I sent over not even a resume, more of a one sheet, just, hey, I can do things. And it was enough to stand out that they're like, okay, yeah. And they contracted me to lay out a book and I did the book and then I was visiting a friend in Austin and they're like, hey, if you run in Austin, come by. So I went by, they signed me to do, I don't know, it's like five or six more books, including some cover art at that time. And by the end of the year, my wife and I had moved to Austin so I could work full time at the company. So this is
0: Austin when Austin wasn't like one of the costlier places to live in the US.
1: No, this was uh Austin at the point that the roads in Austin today should have been back then. So it was growing at the time, but it's nowhere near as bad as it is today. I mean if Austin, I only invested
0: in real estate back then.
1: <laughs> if I'd known what to do, I would have. <laughs> And instead, I was too busy making games.
0: So, but you know what? There's a lot to be said for that. The um, So, and it makes sense. I think the thing too is, you know, there's two sides to like an employee, right? I mean, you there's your, your layout skills, which is one thing, but the, and I think the idea is that in some ways, anybody uh, that's got layout skills can lay things out, right? I mean, that's pretty much a given. But, but especially
1: if you've got a template, you can
0: yeah, you're fine. But I think on the other hand too, it's like you know, but if you're a small company, it's it's much more helpful if you've got somebody that also understands like RPGs or the product too, because it's you're probably doing more than just layout. You're kind of expected in some ways to do you know some form of editing, if it's not strict editing, at least understand. Things in a way that that other people want. So I mean, there's there's a bonus to be had by having someone who's both got the chops, but also has you know the, the the understanding of of the product.
1: Yeah, you kind of need a basic understanding of what you're working on, so you know like where to put line breaks and like where you can drop art in, and it'll make sense. And the process at the time at Steve Jackson Games, and still kind of the way we do it today, is uh, for a book, you lay out the entire thing, dropping in uh, art holes, and then that goes to an editor or art director who writes up art specs and assigns the artwork to an artist. And that way we know exactly what size, where, and what the content should be um. I, my brain works differently than that. I prefer to have a lot of artwork up front when I'm. Well, that's what I was going to
0: ask you and not to uh, jump ahead too far. Um, but I was going to wonder, cause, cause it seemed like with this stuff that you're doing, it's very art heavy where mm-hmm. I think Steve Jackson games was at least in the past. I don't know. was very text heavy before where that was the so primary. Yeah. So yeah, you know, with your stuff, more visual, I was wondering if if you, if that was, if you followed that same, but you don't, you're actually more like, I want to, I want the visual appeal to be a certain way. And the text is important, but it's, 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 I don't say subservient, but it's, it's, or even secondary, but it's kind of secondary to the, the the art and the style. Right.
1: Yeah. I always start with uh, basically a visual outline of a project. So I'll be like, I want to do a 32-page book, and I want it to be about X, and I'll do a lot of research and collect together appropriate artwork and then design the entire thing minus text, and then I'll write to fit the design, tweaking the art and stuff as I go just, oh, I need a little more room here. I've got more to say, so I'll either lose this piece of art or make this piece of art smaller or... You know, I don't have as much to say here as I thought. I'll make this piece of art a little bit bigger, and it's just a process I go through when I create anything.
0: And so, at Steve Jackson Games, uh, there's a wide variety of, you know, products. You know, they're from like card and uh, board to role playing, and they all kind of vary, probably in their demands and and style. You know, I think. You know, even back in the day, I don't, I think when you hired, I don't know, they were still doing stuff in plastic bags like they were back in the early 80s, but.
1: Uh. Not really. Um, the occasional thing, but mostly those were like direct sales items. The majority of what was being made when I started there were just 128 page soft cover books, usually printed at Bang uh, Printing in Minnesota it was just kind of a just cycle of create new book, create new book with every now and then let's do something a little different.
0: And it seemed like at the time, I'm not sure how, I'm assuming things are much different now with game systems and such, but it seemed like, um, I think with Steve Jackson games being, I think the number of books and the number of, 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 uh, genres is, is extensive. And I think, pretty well generally regarded well thought of as supplementals that are worthy of reading, even if you're not playing a GURPS game. I mean, they're all, you know, like GURPS horror with Kent height, I think is considered one of the the best horror supplements ever and universally applicable to any game. I think like hero system, because I was a hero system person. um, There's just a lot of really good information in those. um, But I think at the time GURPS, as long as you kept printing, people were buying,
1: right? Oh yeah. Yeah, we were printing dozens of GURPS books a year. Um, And a GURPS book is a lot more work than I think many people realize. Those don't come together quickly. Uh, By the time I would get involved, it was most often at the later stages. Uh, After a year or so at the company, I started being involved much earlier on some of the planning and things like that. But initially, it would be, Manuscript comes in, and we basically have 30 days to get all the layout done, all the art done, get everything finished, and get it off to the printer. When you say get all the art done, are you saying when you say get the art done, you
0: don't mean putting in an art order at that point? Yes. So you put in an art order and you expect art back in a timely manner to be able to finish a book
1: in 30 days? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and the uh, covers were typically handled long before that because we had to do solicitations. The, at the time, and this is nowhere how it works today, you would announce uh, basically 90 days out. And that 90 days would be, okay, we've got the final manuscript in hand. We've got the cover in hand. We're ready to announce the product. And now I've got about 30 days to get all the layout and art done to get it off to the printer, which is about a 30-day process, and then uh, back to the warehouse so that theoretically in that last third of those 90 days, you are receiving the finished books from the printer and shipping them out to distributors so that you can meet your street date.
0: I'm just astounded you can get art that quick because you, you you'd have to have art within like,
1: Two weeks or three weeks. Oh, I didn't say this always worked. <laughs> <laughs> some, some artists, uh, we went like back to that well a lot because they were so very reliable. Um, I handled smart director re- responsibilities for a time. And I was trying to get a very specific look most of the times. And then the realities of budget and time would slap me in the face, and I would just do the best I could.
0: Right, right, because you know, right, because what you want may be right.
1: You you just need you have holes to fill, and (laughs) yeah, it's like you don't you don't always have the perfect artist at the perfect time, but when it's a publishing machine. Yeah. designed around keeping people's jobs. Yeah, you got to go the Mick Jagger
0: route. You don't always get what you want, but you get what you need. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I can't imagine the stress. I, you're putting a, you know, if you had all the art and you have the manuscript, it's like 30 days. Eh, it doesn't seem bad. I mean, I know that's still tight, but I, I can't imagine when you start adding variables, you know,
1: well, one of the areas where I'm extremely lucky especially for this type of work is I can handle book layout quickly. Um, like doing a 128 page book in one day isn't an issue if I've got all the text up front. So that, that would save us some time there. And then I taught some of the other guys in the office, the tricks I was using to accelerate the process a bit. Um, but no, I mean, it didn't always work and books would ship late, which is uh, Common in this industry, even today, for games to ship late. But now it's a much larger and more complicated process. We don't announce the majority of our titles. We announce four months out at the office. And if it is not at print and preferably have a tooling sample in hand, we don't announce. We push back. But even with that in place, the pandemic has greatly disrupted just the entire manufacturing and fulfillment flow to the point that i swear there's days we could have everything printed done at the factory ready to ship announce four months out and still miss our date it's just the delays are insane
0: well, yeah, and i'm sure even it is so complicated because i work uh, for a major manufacturer and it's like it may not even be a major thing that you're missing. It could just be a minor thing that a supplier is missing because they're missing that minor thing. They're not going to give you that minor thing that you need to make your major thing. It's just, it is so, you can't even, it's so complex you can't even foresee all the issues that are at hand in those complexities. So even if you got the paper, you know, there may be another issue that you're not seeing, you know, it's just. And these days paper
1: is a problem.
0: I, I wish I had been tracking paper price or yeah. I wish I've been tra- tracking mix and prices over the last, like once a month, for the last year. I wish I would have been doing that. I know they've, they've had to be going up, but I, I can't tell because I never wrote it down how much it's gone up.
1: Yeah. They, they've definitely gone up and their 130 pound cover stock hasn't been available for months. I think it was June. I placed an order and, Uh, they were still offering that as an option, but they emailed me like two days later and were like, hey, we don't have that stock and we're not gonna have it till August. Are you okay with downgrading to the 110? I'm like, yeah, sure. Because I know the 130 is kind of overkill. I just like it. So Yeah, they're still out of it, I think. think. I haven't seen the 130 offered again since then. I don't think it's an option right now. So yeah. It's frustrating. And there are times that makes them have gotten longer too. I was supposed to have a book delivered uh, full run around December 17th, received an email, basically December 17th saying, Hey, we're sorry. We'll be ready to ship January 3rd, but I'm already anticipating that to be delayed as well.
0: I got lucky with my zine that I got it delivered. It was in October. I think when I put the order in
1: and I got it delivered in two weeks. Nice. Yeah, I was like, I don't know how that happened. That's usually how they were doing it for the longest time. It'd be like two, three weeks at most. But these days, uh, month plus, who knows?
0: Yeah, it's definitely, I think my margins got thrown off. Um, Yeah, it's just, I don't have any concrete evidence. I just wish I'd been, I I wonder if somebody's been tracking prices
1: well, you Somewhere. could jump into your um, history at Mixam to look at what you paid for something before, and then use their calculator to see what would it cost me to do it today.
0: Oh, that's true. I don't have that. Yes, I could do that because I have two projects I did this year. Yes, that's a good point because it's, um, yeah, it, it it almost feels like it went up like at least sixty, seventy percent, but maybe it hasn't. It just feels like it.
1: I haven't paid close attention to their shipping costs to see what happened there. For me, it's been just the extended times time requirements that stand out more than anything.
0: Yeah. And I think the, I, you know, and for me, um, so the, you know, cause you're a one man band for what you're doing. So some of the stuff I've been doing, I've been also been, um, been paying others to do so you know there i'm starting to look at um it's like break even points it's like uh and it seems like my break even points based on calculations keep going further out so so my next project for zine quest it looks like i need to at least i need to fund at four thousand to break even is my okay. calculation so but it doesn't mean that if it doesn't fund like if it only funds at 3000 doesn't mean I'm losing a thousand cuz cuz the printing costs are significant as far as the you know percentage but but anyway, my point is is like yeah those paper costs really start to affect or the the printing costs yeah definitely start affecting you know where that break even point is
1: yeah but you can still run a hundred of something small at Mixam for a really good price like usually a dollar to two dollars a unit
0: well the stuff i'm doing is actually running around seven dollars a unit oh what are yeah. you yeah that's a little
1: a lot of pages
0: yeah i mean it's like the last one i did was uh was like i think it was about not quite 70 pages does it is eight eight and a half by or is it an, yeah eight and a half by 11. Eight and a half by 11 yeah and the previous to that, I did three of them. They were standard size, but it was three. And they were all like 40, 50 pages. Okay. So, and so anyway, the next one I'm going to be doing is probably going to be an 80 pages, six by nine.
1: Just going to do a quick. Yeah, I paid five thirty-two for the most recent uh, 48 page, eight and a half by 11 plus
0: the cover so yeah so I'm, i was doing color for for all i think the interior i'm planning on doing mostly black and white but i'm going to but it still doesn't matter whether you have one color or
1: you had additional color you're you're, you're full yeah. at that point um, yeah the and the price for mixam difference between black and white and color isn't huge
0: no it isn't and I'm thinking about using also, I think it also ups the price. I'm planning for this one not to do the, the, um, the, um, not the glossy. What's that sat? I'm not planning on doing sat. I'm planning on just doing raw paper. And I think that might also increase the ink prices a little bit.
1: Yeah. I think it'll cut your time a little bit too, though. Well, sounds like a nerd paradise of printing. <laughs> <laughs> the, the place I keep trying to experiment with, and I still haven't been 100% successful, is the drive through RPG print-on-demand stuff. There's something about their process that just my approach doesn't align with perfectly, and I don't know what it is.
0: Well, I went to do that for Scoundrels, my, my previous Inquest, uh, and then I saw how complex it was going to be. And it just, it, I, I waited till I was gonna have more time and it scared me off. sucked. <laughs> like... Now their card printing is
1: super easy to work with and I love that. And the, uh, for some reason, the book printing, and I haven't done cards for a while, so this could have changed, but the book printing, you upload everything to drive through RPG, and then at some point they send you a notice like, hey, you're approved to order your test copy. But with card printing, I would upload everything and I could order the test copy immediately. I didn't have to wait for something else. And my impatience sometimes has me think, I should just make card decks and then I don't have to wait for other people.
0: Yeah, just everything's a card deck. Just think of all the ways you can cheat with a card deck. (laughs) As I went to, we we went to...
1: It's a card deck.
0: <laughs> we, we went to a restaurant uh, on vacation. They were like really, really busy, and the waitress still wasn't there. And the hostess said, "I can order an entree or an uh, appetizer if you guys, you know, want to order an appetizer." We we ordered the appetizer, and it came before the waitress came to take our. You know, and I was like, "We should just ordered all appetizers. <laughs> 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 it would have been sooner." So he, it's like. Okay, let's rethink this. How big can we make the
1: cards? Can we have
0: 8 and a half by 11 cards?
1: <laughs> um, they do offer, what is that? There's something larger. I think it was uh, Ed over at Skeleton Key Games was telling me that he uses for his adventure tiles. I think it's the card printing. If I can't find something quickly, I will have to call him later today and say, hey, what do you do? I think the thing Isles. is, yeah, they offer uh six by six, eight by 10. They offer a page eight and a half by 11. <laughs> That's
0: yep, so you, you can get insane with this stuff. So, I mean, if you and I think what you've done, um, uh, not to uh, is what I've noticed is that you've definitely have uh started you know, say thinking outside the box where you see a product and you're like, what can I do with this? Yes. You, you don't say I got a project. I'm not sure what's the best format." You're like, you know what? This tenfold thing that does this with this and that. And it's like, you know what? I bet I could do something fun with that. And then you
1: do. That's yeah. I like to find a format or I, I love printers that have online calculators where I can just play with the numbers and stuff because eventually I get an idea from that. Um, Like that pocket map printer has a full online quoting system where you can get all the information. So I don't even have to bother them to find out if I want to use this or not. I just play with it and I'm like, okay, those numbers make sense. What can I do in this format? (laughs) It's so funny.
0: So I don't want to say backwards because I think what happens is at least so I do analysis in my mind. It may not be right. So this is this is my analysis of you, which may be completely incorrect. Okay, because <laughs> because uh, I look at what you do and I'm like, my goodness. So it appears to me that at least as of recent, um, you you came across uh, you know workborg. right? And I think the idea is you know that you got the ability to put out. Morkborg material in a variety of formats. The format really doesn't matter. You know, you can, if, if it's going to be a 110 page book or if it's going to be seven, uh, uh, four by five cards, you know, you can produce Morkborg material, is what, the way I feel. Okay. And that when you look at something, you feel very comfortable. You're like, you know what? I already understand the feel and the look and the general content I can do. I can look at the format and be creative with how that's going to come out. Is that the case?
1: That's fair. I do that for other um, titles as well. Like I'm doing a systemless fantasy pocket map project next month. And, but yeah, um, the Morkboard game fits me perfectly because of the rules like nature, the distress design. It's like just a lot of things I like all happen to come together at the perfect place um they're more in the like doom metal yeah visceral like bloody nasty and um i i approach the stuff i make for it more from a like cosmic weirdness but it does it does mesh well but i don't get really into the and they vomit blood when you fail this test or something that's, that's not my personal taste. Right. So. But I, they think
0: it's not even, I mean, but what it is, is the, I'll just say the design aesthetic. And I will say not just even the when I say design aesthetic. So I think to me, this is me, like say, I may be wrong. Yeah. I think it's not necessarily the exact content, but it's, it's the It's the format in which Morkborg presents itself, both as far as information mechanics, as well as the graphic design aspect of it, lends itself to what you're doing.
1: Well, and I try it, I do something that's a little more adjacent to their design approach. Um, I used to do stuff that was way more influenced by like old David Carson Raygun works. But um, these days, as I get older, my eyesight is, I mean, it was already bad, but yeah. now it's worse. So I aim for legibility <laughs> yes. with a lot of what I do. Um, like the more core book, there are sections of it I can only read by taking my glasses off and getting my face as close to that page as possible. So on my own side, when I make something, I want it to look visually like it's in the same general family, but a little easier for me to read.
0: Yeah, and to be fair, I've not I don't have the more Borg uh or how you pronounce it. It's not right. right. But anyway. I think it's Mjorkborg or I have even heard it pronounced even weirder than that. So Yeah, I've heard I've heard Merk Merk Merkberg and I've heard it in the last one, not even being close. Like I don't know, like a Y sound. It's just weird. But anyway. Oh wow. I've never yeah, it's on Corey. I think it's yeah, it's a fact. That I had um, interviewed Jeff Richard from uh, Chaosium, and I believe he pronounced Pendragon as Pendigrin. Oh wow! <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, so I don't know, and I'm like, he went to Germany. He maybe he knows. I don't. I don't know. It's hard. But anyway, I'll make no pretension that I,
1: I know. Uh, but um, so I've never had a hard time getting past uh, Pendigrin. Yes, and yeah, that's been sticking my head for quite a while
0: now. And and also, you know, the is it Melabane, not Melabone? So it's like right. I don't know. So, but the I never read the I've never actually read the book. So, okay. and a lot of my you know probably my understanding of Morkboard probably comes more from
1: your work than does anything else. <laughs> well, I think it is hands down one of the best rules light RPGs in the last few years. I mean, I backed the Kickstarter campaign initially when it happened, just because so much of what was happening there really caught my eye. And the fact they then uh, created a license was just like icing. Yes. Just, like I saw that license. And I'm like, well, I just we're going to have fun with this. There's no way I'm not doing something. And I've been lucky that the audience seems to enjoy what I'm doing enough that I can do more. Like well, I just released a CD for it. Um, well,
0: well I think awesome. what
1: you've done
0: is so this is me just doing analysis. This may not be correct, because that's just I can't stop but thinking about things. Okay. So, so I think we are we'll just talk about the RPG zing community on not just on Facebook, but just this whole thing in general. I think there is an as opposed to we'll say people who are more just in the Traditional stuff. I think people are more interested in unique and fun ways of presenting things than they are just about strictly content. And I think you have provided some very fun and unusual. Why I say unusual, I mean non-traditional ways of presenting RPG material that people find fun and exciting. Well,
1: I'm lucky that they're willing to support my stupid (laughs) ideas. I'm gonna like uh, so. One of the things I've been experimenting with recently is a 12 inch by 12 inch book, and I've found a couple places to print it. I found one printer, uh, Print Ninja, that will let me do. I think it was a 17 by 17 inch book is the largest size I can make. Their calculator give me. Something with that.
0: <laughs> so you feel like calling them saying, you know what? I know your calculator goes to this, but what are my real well,
1: limits? <laughs> you've got to be careful with that. The accordion <laughs> book. I, I don't know if you saw that accordion book that I made earlier this year. Yeah. But for that one, I went to Alibaba. I found a couple different printers and uh, requested quotes from both of them. They both came back and it was like $200 to get just a white mock-up. So I paid each of them to make white white mock-ups. They came in. One was way better than the other because um, the one I rejected couldn't do the full, like almost 48-inch piece of cardstock as one piece. So they glued it together somewhere toward the center and it had this ugly seam. And I was like, no, we're not doing that. And this other one, they did great. They made the entire thing exactly as I wanted it. So that weekend I made the product and sent the files to them in order to print tests with all the art and stuff in place. And then ran the Kickstarter campaign. That did well. They started printing and they contacted me and said, hey, we can't do it as one piece. It's just too big for mass production. And I'm like, well, this isn't going to work because you've given me tests. And eventually it was, well, if i pay more, they can use this other machine that can do a sheet that size. And by then I'm like, yes, I'll pay you more. Just get it the way I need it please. And the end result is amazing. I mean, I, I've got one here somewhere. I just absolutely love how this turned out. And I would enjoy doing it again. I just don't know if I can handle that stress again so going through the... But, oh but maybe this one, if I go to the same printer and tell them up front, hey, just charge me the more money for the bigger machine, we'll be okay. But uh, this, I don't know if you've seen it, so I, I think the
0: problem is I probably have seen it initially, but I don't think right. I understood the size or scale of this, of this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for the, for those of you who are listening to, the, to listen to the podcast, uh, I, I'm going to put this on YouTube. So you may want to just come to that because it's, worth it. it's It's much bigger than I thought it would be. So, so what you're showing there? Because I was at a car dealership uh, like last year, and I saw they did some fun stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm just not far along in my. You've got the for for whatever reason you've got the. Um, you got the ability
1: to do a lot more output than I'm capable of doing. So, well, I, I kind of uh, admire it This was that. a Saturday Sunday job here. Once I had the idea and verified that the printer could do the size.
0: Yeah, but you wrote it though, right? Yeah. So you 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 didn't write the whole thing on a Saturday Sunday, did you? Yeah. Okay, now I hate you, Phil. I just <laughs> so you you wrote, laid out, got all the art, everything
1: you, together in one weekend. If you want to make it even worse, <laughs> and I'll just apologize up front so this is a six and a quarter by 11 inch tall 64 page hardcover printed this one with Taylor printing in Dallas yeah this one was a couple of Saturdays in a row to create and it was super fun yeah, it's
0: uh, it's definitely um, <laughs> and I, I, like I said I, to me. So I backed a bunch of stuff for Zine Quest, uh three. Okay, and, and there's a lot of people who either I bought at book level or I bought at uh, just the PDF, and they tried to get trendy, but it sacrificed uh, as we as you were talking about before legibility. And to me, that's unforgivable. Like I really don't care how cute you think you are putting pink text on white paper, but that is not, there's nothing there's. Yeah. But this is like, you said, you know what, I'm going to have the design aesthetic
1: and legibility all at the same time. The legibility is very important to me. So yes. Um, This has like some distressed design elements to it. But ultimately when you get in close and start reading. Right. I made sure that all the words are fully legible. And that's more for me than anybody else.
0: Well, and I think, and and I think not to even just point it. Our age, but uh, I mean, (laughs) I don't want cute dice. I want to be able to roll the die on the table, and I want to be able to see and interpret it immediately without any
1: sort of time taken to. I've had glasses since I was seven, so it's a combination of things, including age. But uh, if you want dice that can be a little challenging to read, (laughs) this uh, (laughs) gelatinous (laughs) cube die can be. Yeah,
0: no, I. I, I now that is a night, nice, that I will say that gelatinous cube die I think wins for an object down your desk and to show people and maybe roll it on occasion.
1: Uh, I take issue with that because at the office we made a die that is really in the object on your desk sort of thing. So I mean Yeah. Cube die is tiny in comparison. Yeah,
0: but I th- but I mean it's at least it's more you, you can still distinguish a four pretty readily on that ten cider. Yeah, but I, I got some kids. Uh, well, I say kids.
1: <laughs> I want to
0: junk on my desk, but they got a lot of these with the scroll work and all the stuff, and it's like even they will roll it and they'll stare at it for a while to, to determine what number there is. Like no, I want high contrast. Um, but anyway that's just that's my preference so yeah so you're making
1: you, we're making these dice at the office right now
0: uh that's cute when you say making it at the office what do you mean you're making it at the office
1: this is uh steve jackson games project that's at the factory now Ooh. what i like is how the design goes around the corners
0: yeah yeah I, I agree. And that one is both cute and it also is, you can distinguish pretty quickly
1: what it is. Well, as bad as my side, eyesight is, Steve is even worse. So, so, what, so
0: is that supposed to be, so that die, is it part of some sort of top secret project?
1: No, it's just a die.
0: Oh, it's, so it's not going to some sort of whatever game. Just
1: six-sided dice.
0: It's not going to the Munchkin Matrix uh, tie-in. No.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There is no such thing that I know of.
0: Uh, Okay. Yes, I'm sure you're denying it because it doesn't exist.
1: (laughs) Well, I almost worked on a Matrix RPG over 20 years ago, but uh, that turned out to be a real nightmare. Who who was it it for? I mean, who was going to produce it?
0: With Steve Jackson.
1: Uh, I'm trying to remember if we've ever been very public about it, but um yeah, we were working through an agent and created kind of a mock-up of uh page design and some text and stuff like that, but unfortunately at the time they were so busy working on the next two films that the whole project got shelved within like 2 months.
0: Yeah, when are talking about, oh, you know, we're
1: talking about that. Tens It'll of millions of dollars
0: break. on the line versus an RPG product that's, you know, it's so minuscule.
1: Oh, yeah. Totally, yeah. totally understand.
0: So, not to get too far in, like, you know, and I, you know, Steve Jackson's games, but but it's like, I know it, it, it at least appears to me that Munchkin allowed, is really allowed Steve Jacksons just to print money. I mean, there was, at least for a while there. So, just in general, like, you know, with GURPS and different things and and things have its, it's, it's, you know, peaks and valleys, like what are you, as a game coming, like what are you seeing as being strong or weak or what's been, you know, what you can share navigating through economies and, and changes of gaming preferences,
1: you know, what's. The big challenge these days is still just the nonstop flood of new releases. When you put out a new game, you don't even have 30 days of being considered a new game in terms of uh, sales. Used to be you could put out a new game and take the next year, like going to conventions, trade shows, teaching the game, and slowly build your audience and your sales that way. But these days, 30 days later, I mean, distributors have moved on, the audience has moved on, they're looking at the next wave of Dozens, if not hundreds of new games. Um, The pandemic's definitely slowed that down a bit, but it's still an insane number of new releases coming constantly. I I described it as more of a periodicals model today, where you publish a game and you know you're going to sell it for about a month and then you have to publish the next game that you're going to sell for about a month. Creating evergreens is not not really a thing these days. Um, there's been a few titles over the last three to five years that have managed to take off and stand out. But I mean, I couldn't name 10 new games from the last two years that are still in like everyone's mind and on top of the charts.
0: So you've been, you know, successful, you know, in why I say successful, I'll um, say successful. It seems like you've been very successful in the way you've been implementing your own personal projects. You know, is there any sort of thought of Steve Jackson games like changing to, and I'd say doing what you're doing, but is, is there been a, like, I just wonder our bigger game companies kind of rethinking like smaller projects or doing smaller projects or, Or is it still pretty much the model that's been used Is really the one that needs to be followed? I mean, has there been any thoughts you
1: think in that direction? I don't, I don't know how many publishers have started experimenting with uh, smaller direct sales items. Seems like if anything, crowdfunding has just become more and more important to a lot of publishers. Uh, It's it. If you've got a million or $2 million crowdfunding campaign, then the larger market is more interested than if you just were to create the game and ship it to stores.
0: Yeah, I can't even imagine. Uh, Right. Yeah, I mean, and even like, like, right, because it feels like, it feels like, uh, unfortunately, that the stores is, even though it's still probably – it's important for very large companies, but it's only the very, very, very large companies. That I think they're really benefiting from a lot of retail, you know, like, like, uh, like, which is the coast. They're going to, um, you know, they're going to break through in, in being Target and Walden books and whatever, but it's much harder for a smaller company to, to get product there. And I think the, the Kickstarter does seem to be like, even going with like free league my goodness they just do so well with the kickstarter model that it's, it, it's core
1: I, i'm i'm constantly amazed at what they've managed to build there and every project they do looks to me like a huge success and yeah and they're serious how, about, yeah go ahead Yeah, I, I i don't know how much of that translates into uh, larger distribution sales.
0: I think to me, I'm going to guess, I think, um, you know, most of their sales, I am going to guess that most of their, I think I still think I think most of their sales are either going to be online. They're going to be through Amazon
1: or they're going to be through the Kickstarter. I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah. I'd like to know how well their sales do through distribution but I know the majority of their product I can get online without too much trouble.
0: Also, yeah. I will say too, I've been, I've uh, bought into uh, the Foundry virtual tabletop. Okay. <clears throat> so it's like roll 20, but to me it's much more robust. And, um, and it's, um, I think it's easier for companies and people to uh create content for and to do mechanics that being said you know i got coriolis the first one uh, but their other products have demonstrated that they're able to automate rolling on tables in a way that in presenting information very quickly and being able to directly affect the game uh, in a very short amount of time being i think to me, has the ability to revive games that that uh, have more complexity. <clears throat> For instance, uh, did you play Role Master? <laughs> I played MURP, which was like Role Master. <laughs> <back clears throat> yeah, so I mean, it's like, you know, right now, if you were to play that game, you know, it's a matter of, you know, I got, usually you'd have your own, you know, if you got a broadsword, you would have your broadsword table in front of you. You know, the armor class, you'd roll cross index, damage plus your critical, then you go to your critical table, and some weapons could be... I can't remember if some weapons could have maybe options of maybe multiple, maybe not. Maybe it's just always just slashing or crushing, and you'd roll on that. Where now, you can just click your weapon and it presents your result and your uh, your critical, and it could
1: apply it to your enemy all at one time. To, yeah, to I me, haven't I haven't tried any of the online tabletop systems like that i opened up roll 20 at one point and just got lost and confused yeah it's not i don't feel very well implemented but
0: but the foundry at least free league the stuff they've been putting out at least as far as uh, valen and alien and um and uh, forbidden lands especially Forbidden lands it's just it's it's pretty inspiring so what makes me realize is like you know games like you know games like a uh, rollmaster are much more viable but also I was never a gurps person I was a hero person hero system okay and i think to me what drove it so i love the hero system uh, and and it probably works the same for gurps is that i think as far as combat goes it is a fun system it just takes too long i mean for me it just takes an hour and a half to run a combat but i think I think now with the tools, I think it could be run much quicker and it may make a lot of these games that have a higher level of complexity much more accessible at the table without the need to spend so much time dealing with those mechanics. Um, And I think there's a possibility this could revive a lot of games that are very solid that just need some ability to, to... you know, it used to be like with 3.5 uh, D&D, I, which I never played, but it required people to have mastery and to read the books and read all the rules. But, but, now I think with the online tools, it can simplify a lot of that complexity and and bring people back to these games.
1: I haven't tried Foundry. Is it easier than Roll Twenty?
0: I believe so. So, the way Foundry works is you pay a fifty dollar fee. And then you own foundry and you can run it on your own computer and you can host it. Okay. And, um, and, uh, or you can pay money and have it hosted remotely, which I do. Cause it, I was having problems with my computer working, but, and then <clears throat> that's it. And you can, and then, um, so there's already a GURPS module out there. So what people will do is they'll create a, a game system. And so a lot of the underlying mechanics are there.
1: Mm-hmm. But what's generally not there is the content to fill it. Is Foundry cross-platform? Like I'm on a Mac, so I can play with people on Windows, no problem.
0: Yeah, so it's all hosted. It's all being done via web browser. So yes, okay. and um, and so you know, like for Free League, I download the Coriolis uh, game system, uh, and it was it had all the Coriolis mechanics, character sheet but it didn't have the talents, it didn't have the skills, it didn't have the equipment, it didn't have the books, it didn't have all that, and then what they do is then they sell then then freely they can sell the content and it just plugs right, right in and it makes character creation so much simpler, makes everything so much simpler. So, you know, my hope is, you know, and I think, you know, if there's funding, I think, like I say, I think you know, systems like, uh, you know, like with, because GURPS is a great system. Hero system is a great system. They're all, I think Role Master at its heart is a great system. Okay. It's just, I think that it's just, it's just in in generally people playing online and I think in general people playing, they just want things to go quicker. And I think it's, it's an opportunity to make these systems really shine in a way that makes it very accessible. So we'll see, but I think the future is
1: bright. Uh, for this stuff. It's just, you know, where it's going to head next. I'll have to look at Foundry because yeah, I've, I've spent some time with Roll20 and I just, I don't know what's happening.
0: Yeah. It's from my understanding, <clears throat> Foundry is, I don't want to say open sourced, but it's much more open to people doing things with it. It's much more, I think it's much more flexible in that regard. So, and because people okay. do, you can, it, it can, and their model is really good. So, but anyway, that may be, you know, an avenue for like Steve Jackson <clears throat> to go with some other stuff or maybe not. I don't know, but free league's definitely gotten that point. So, <clears throat> excuse me. so anyway, I guess also, you know, going back to Kickstarters, cause you've been doing this for a while and I think I'm going to try something cause you, you, you do some, you do some things that seem counterintuitive for Kickstarters. Okay. Uh, your i your pdf model like i think you just charge a buck and you get like all the pdfs is that if i recall correctly
1: depends depends on project but i've done that often yes <laughs> so, and at, at first i thought man i is that
0: nuts and i as the more i think about it <laughs> the more i look into your badness i realize no i think you're right and i think for my next kickstarter it's like Because most people, I think, want the physical product. And why not just make the the PDFs much cheaper?
1: Well, and post-campaign, the PDFs cost more. Oh, so that's what you do. I see. So if you are part of the Kickstarter, like um, I do those dozen series Kickstarters where the stretch goals are, and you get another PDF. And eventually, by the end, people have gotten 12 PDFs for their dollar, and each one's like 13 to 14 pages. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... So that is kind of along the lines of something I tried years ago with PDF publishing, where my goal wasn't to get a lot of money out of one person. My goal is to get a little money out of a lot of people. And, uh, at the time I was publishing PDFs that were like a dollar, $2, something like that. And I intended to be more like the candy counter at the checkout. You're like going through the store, you've bought your four PDFs you want, you're about to check out, but you know, here's all these little like dollar PDFs. You just add a couple on, it's not really going to hurt anything. And when I went to Kickstarter and started experimenting with that model. The idea was everybody who follows you on Kickstarter receives an email when you back something. And at a dollar, if you're an RBG fan, a dollar is well worth it for these PDFs. I mean, in my opinion, they're worth much more than that, but a dollar is a no brainer. Like, yeah, I'm right. going to spend a dollar to get this. It looks good. It sounds like it would fit. And worst case scenario, I get seven useful pages out of the hundred or whatever I got for my dollar. And that just then spirals because once you get in there and you're like, well, you know, if I go to $5, I can get not only the new PDFs, but here's these two older PDFs that I missed. And it just builds on top of itself. And then I try and make sure to go back and repeat that by, telling people when I have a new, similar campaign. And at that point, maybe you you missed the first two. Yeah. Back the third one, and you spent like $12 in the third one. But after that point, you just have to spend a dollar to get all the new stuff. And the the numbers can add up. But I think even
0: just even the initial campaign, the PDF is generally, I think, quite a bit cheaper than the physical product when you offer it. But see, that got me to thinking – so when I first did Scoundrels I think the, the the split was really pretty pretty even between people buying the book and the number of people buying PDFs but with During the Madlands there's more people that bought the book than they bought the PDF okay and I re- and I realized well people really want the book but it, I started thinking it's like why not get why not just drive the price down even further for the PDF because like you said I think if if I'd lower the PDF down to half the price, I could probably doubled it. But if I would have put it down to like $2, I probably, who knows? It's really not that much more work for me to distribute another. I mean, it's the same amount of work for me to distribute the PDFs for, for five people as it is for 5,000. There's no difference in amount of time and effort it takes me. Yeah.
1: And. One of the things I want to experiment is releasing a product on drive through RPG and like stealing the stretch goal concepts, but applying it to a drive through RPG release where maybe it's like a 20 page PDF for like two bucks. And if I tell everybody, you know what, For the first 30 days, this PDF is only $2, but for every Metal level, we surpass in that time. I'm going to add four more pages. So I've got (laughs) more content to add. So getting people to buy early and then maybe tell others, like, hey, this is a good deal. And if more of us get in, it gets to be a better deal. And by you
0: driving that traffic early on, you're driving being on the front page. Yes then you're also driving and getting medals is important in drive through yes. So you're actually achieving two other things that you really want to happen
1: by doing that. Yes. And uh, one of the ideas I had for a project like that was to tell everybody we have X number of days when it's this price, when I'm doing this whole stretch goal concept. And the last stretch goal is, and now here's a print-on-demand offering of this entire collection that you can get at cost, like you just pay the uh, drive-through RPG cost and shipping cost.
0: So you're so you do this for a limited time, and then you would then change. I guess the question: Have you talked to anybody from Drive-Through about this? Why is that? Well, I don't know because it's it's kind of weird because I I don't not saying it's kind of an interesting direction you're going and there's nothing that I'm saying that's like wrong about it. Um, But I think there, I just wondering is that's an interesting model. I guess the question is when you're, you're doing the distribution, is the communication being done through drive-through or is it being done through your followers
1: on your own like newsletter. If I was to do something like this, what I would do is price the PDF at whatever I think it should be $3, $4. I don't know. Depends on what it is size and then use the uh, coupon code system and email system to email all my existing uh, customers who have purchased things from me before and outline the entire plan there give them the coupon code to get the reduced price, but then also on the product page itself list the, these are the stretch goals associated to the metal rankings so that people who haven't bought things from me before, but end up on that page when the product potentially ends up on the front page of the site and gets more recognition, they get there and they can see Oh, it's copper now, so it's got these extra pages.
0: And you're not really changing anything in the offering; you're just changing what you're, the way you're handling it from the back end,
1: I guess. Yeah, and then um, I would up upload the updated PDF as required. Like, okay, we're silver now. I need to upload this version of the PDF, and then everybody who's already purchased it receives the email notice that, hey, the file's been updated. And in that email notice, you can craft a message so I can also say, hey, we only need 97 more people to get to the next uh, reward, the next stretch goal. Yeah, that's very clever. And I think you definitely, I mean, you definitely
0: spent, you know, decades building up an audience. So I think, uh, or or a base, I should say, not an audience, but, uh, and that's really you've gotten yourself in a position where this is something that's very viable.
1: I think it could be done. Uh, it's an experiment I want to try at some point. So,
0: yeah, I mean, it, 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 it does seem like it should work. It, I think what you're doing then is you're bypassing a lot of the complexities of, of Kickstarter. Yeah. But you're, what you're trying to do, I'm just going to assume this is me trying to do the analysis <laughs> I think you're trying to understand your bang for your buck and energy's put
1: in for Kickstarter versus non Kickstarter, because it's well, be- part of it. Part of it comes down to Kickstarter is a finite resource. You can only run so many projects at a time, and I can make more things in a year than I have the Kickstarter bandwidth to pull off. And I know just releasing a PDF at drive through. Eh, you're not going to get noticed. It doesn't really matter. You've got to be somebody like really established, kind of like very large, uh, dedicated audience. But doing little tricks like this can help.
0: Yeah, it's interesting your- because I, you know, the the, the the metal rating. If you if one pays attention, to the metal rating. You look at like large publishers like um like Monty Monty, Monty Cook huh Some of their some of their main products, well, I say the major they don't have very high metal ratings. It's yeah. just kind of interesting, you know. So then it's at that point you're like, they must be making their money off the Kickstarter. Right? Not to be obvious, but that's and I'm sure the a lot of the core books they're selling, they're making money off of the core books through Amazon and through through game stores. But but if you look at like a lot of their products, they're not making that much money off of the kickstart off of RPG or through drive through RPG PDFs. But then on the other hand, you see other people that they're making a lot of money off of the the PDFs off of, I mean, so it's interesting how different companies, you know, some I think are have a presence on drive through just because it does provide some money, but there's other Mm -hmm. companies that it provides a lot of money and it's not
1: always clear who or what and how that works. Well, and also, like, uh, Monty Cook Games has their own website where they right. sell the PDFs. So the majority of their marketing efforts going to be sending people to their website to buy PDFs where they can keep a higher percentage of the money. And DriveThru is just bonus sales from that other right. audience.
0: So, so Steve Jackson, I've never paid attention. So Steve Jackson Games, I know you have, Was it, Warehouse 23 is the in-house? Yes. Is there a drive through presence at all? There is. Okay. Is all and the content it, or just some of the content?
1: The majority, I think. And it's a good example of that whole, we've got our own site, so our marketing efforts go toward people, going, like, directing people to buy from us. And the drive through is just, hey, here's, like, a bonus audience that's already using this other site and doesn't use our site.
0: I think the marketing, there's a certain marketing engine that comes with drive-thru that you'll not get anywhere else. As far as like, you know, you buy something or looking at something and you go to the bottom, it's like, people that bought this, they also bought this, 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 and this. And then Mm -hmm. you can find yourself like, you know, going through a lot of products that wouldn't be related. You know, you don't have to go be looking, you do not have to be looking for a particular Steve Jackson games product. To then also be exposed to a Steve Jackson Games product,
1: and there's some uh, tools built into Drive Through RPG that, if you wanted to take the time and really start using them, could uh, manipulate some of your sales rankings. Um, for example, if you release a brand new release, like I have a brand new PDF, I'm going to put it out today, and I'm going to message my entire audience with, "Hey." For the next 48 hours, here's a code to get this new PDF for a dollar. It's normally five dollars. So over the next 48 hours, some percentage, it's maybe five to 10%, actually come in and buy it at that dollar. The charts and rankings and everything don't really care if that sale was a dollar right. coupon or the five dollar full price you're still going to get bumped up in the rankings. It has to be a minimum of a dollar, I believe, right? I think I think so. So by getting that huge initial spike right out the gate and getting jumped up on charts, by the time your coupon codes have worn off, the rest of the audience at the site's like, well, what's this thing that came from out of nowhere and hit like number two on the charts in the first day?
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just did. It. I mean, I think especially for smaller publishers too. you know, things like this, as you build up in a, a group of people who are following, you know, these are types of things that are also important, maybe even more important. <laughs> it's,
1: it's hard. It's a struggle. Um, and, you know, well, there's people, so many options to, to do. Being able to repeat things like that is what matters most if you want to do this full time. Um, Because having a one-time, like, oh, I hit silver, that's great, that's nice and all. But if you can hit silver with every new title in the first 24 hours or so, that's just going to grow your overall, um, like, the impression people have of your work and what's happening.
0: Yeah, and I agree. And I think also, too, it's like I need to figure out, you know, there's a migration, you know. So if you're doing Kickstarter... You know, step one's a Kickstarter, but then the second step is drive-through. So it's like, you know, what's the game plan? You know, for
1: that. So it's something. That's part of why on some of my Kickstarter campaigns, if I'm offering smaller releases, I'll make sure to link to the drive-through RPG page from the Kickstarter campaign and be like, hey, if you just want to get the PDF now and not wait, or if you want to learn more about this, you can go to this page. Because then, even after the Kickstarter campaign's closed that's essentially just one more breadcrumb out on the internet to guide people to someplace they can buy that other work.
0: That's a great idea. That's a great idea. Well, Phil, I think uh, we're kind of hitting the time space continuum. I've uh, I've consumed about an hour and a half of your day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope that was entertaining for you. Oh, entertaining and enlightening, and uh, I and I do appreciate it, and um, I think I definitely need to have you back on again, <laughs> because there's, I think, a lot more things to discuss. Yeah, this is an infinite well. It is an infinite well, and I think we're all in, when I say all, there's a lot of us in this space of trying to figure it out. and Yeah. And we're all in different degrees and different spots, and and I just know that <clears throat> there's been a number of things that you have stated. At first, I was like, eh, and I'd be like, Nope, you're right. <laughs> so, and I know you're right. Yep, you're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I think there was one where you said, you know, what do you maybe someone posted like, if you got these people who they back. And then all of a sudden you never get their address. you're like, I just refund them their money. Like you don't even mess around. Yeah. And I, I gave, I did some private emails. There's only a few people. I did some, some responded. I felt good about it. But then it's like, you're right. Refund their money. You don't want that hanging over your head. Just.
1: Yeah. It's like at the office, we finished the Ogre Kickstarter Hmm. back in 2013. No joke. This year we've had people contact us with, Hey, I finished my survey. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you just you cannot let that stuff hang open forever.
0: So no, and I think for as
1: from- well we have we we announce a date like hey on this day if you haven't finished your survey you're getting refunded, and we have it on the campaign page. We'll be in the fact we do updates. We send messages and, and like we message everybody who hasn't finished their survey starting like a week before, and we're like hey, no kidding. This is going to happen, and the day after, we send a message: "Look, you've got like 24 hours to finish your survey, or you're getting refunded." Zero response from a person, like none, no comment, no nothing. You refund them within like five minutes. They're like, "Why'd you refund me?" And you're like, oh my god! So you're telling me you've been getting all of my messages that say I'm going to refund you, but you don't take any action until no. you've been how do I get in? How do I get it? It's like, I can't help you.
0: Well, I think for business, I think there's a lot of reasons, you know, to, I mean, probably like, you don't want to be holding on to stock and inventory and deal. No. I mean, you want to go through your normal channels after this, but, but I think as an, well, indiv- but as an individual,
1: it's a it's business a, liability because you've taken money. So you've got to track this on your balance sheet. Right. Like, $72 for backer X who never finished their survey seven years ago. But I'm for me, there, the there's an
0: emotional thing as far as a, as a person and my own Kickstarter, I want this Kickstarter to be done. Like I do yes. not want to be thinking about, I wonder if George is going to finally respond after, I mean, I don't want that. I want,
1: it's, it's worth it. Be, if well, you let them, if you just leave it there and you're like finish your survey when you finish it, Typically, the way it works is six months, a year, two years. I wish I was exaggerating. Five years later, they complete their survey and instantly post a comment. I don't have my stuff. (laughs) And it's like, really? (laughs) You're going to be like this? You've basically (laughs) vanished off the face of the earth for the last five years, never finished your survey. Now you've finished your survey and you want to know why you don't have your stuff that day. So no, it's, it's so much, it is better for your mental health to have a refund policy and a deadline because you don't need this. And think about it, um, I ran in 2020, 11 campaigns. I almost hit 12, but I failed. And this year I only hit eight or nine. I failed on that as well. I'm gonna get to 12 in one year, I'm going to. But let's say you let all those just be open and people complete the surveys when they complete them. Now, you don't know what day you're going to get zero to 100 people. Hey, I finished my survey. Where's my stuff? Right. You just don't need that in your life. No. (laughs) It's horrible to refund the money, especially when, like, oh, I just had to refund $1,000 to like 27 different people who never finished their surveys. Well, but But, you also
0: lose money because Kickstarter's already taken their cut. So
1: you're actually losing money by refunding money, not just giving their money back. um so that is the reason for a lot of my campaigns now the deadline is before Kickstarter pays me so that I don't lose that money because if you refund before you get paid the full refund amount comes out of what's uh the total yeah. amount it's only if you refund after you've get paid that you lose that 10%. So yeah most of my projects the deadline is uh, about eight to 10 days after the project ends the campaign I'm running next month, since I'm using backer kit for surveys and everything that one, unfortunately I won't be able to do the refunds uh, before the deadline. Uh, maybe I'm going to have to talk. I've got somebody who helps me with backer kit because I do not understand their tools. <laughs> so I have to get help for that, but maybe there's a way to deal with surveys before that deadline.
0: Yeah, it's it's definitely, and especially when you're. So what I'll just say is yours what you're doing. You have more of a machine running. You have a you. It, it's really, I mean, it's it's clunk 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 clunk. You can't afford you know if I'm only doing like two or even three, it's one thing. But if you're trying to do ten, you just you got to keep the machine going because once that once that one starts backing up it starts going to create problems for everything else. you got to keep everything orderly in progression. Otherwise you're going to lose track. It's hard. It's probably hard enough to, to keep track of everything with mobile with probably more than a few
1: a year, let alone, you know, 10. Well, um, that's why most of my Kickstarter <clears throat> campaigns, all the creative work is done before I launch the project because I, I don't want to be in a situation where I'm now just trying to, bang out some content in order to fill some arbitrary page count.
0: Well, like, that's to me what I... So originally I was going to do two Kickstarters for ZineQuest 3. Um, one, I had the content already pretty much mostly done. Uh needs some editing, some of the stuff, but it was mostly done. The other one I had some people still giving me stuff. And I thought, well, I just would finish that one up once I got the money. But after Kickstarter said, no, you can't run two at the same time. I was very thankful because then I would have been under stress to both get it out, but also not cheat anybody with content. I mean, you know what I mean? So, so when you take your time, you say, you know what, once I have it laid out, once I have the, the, the text, you're like, I'm happy with this. Now I'm ready to to kickstart it rather than, go through this mental gyration of am I just shortcutting just to get this out or, yeah? I mean, it's hard to be creative and be under that pressure.
1: Yeah, and I I usually have a dozen plus different projects in various stages that I'm working on, and it's not until something hits like this creative tipping point where I'm like, okay, that's what I'm obviously doing next, and then I wrap it up and move on. But the Kickstarter limitations on how many you can run, how many you can have open, things like that, can be an obstacle of sorts. Like they approved my Mimics campaign back in October, and I was originally going to run it in October or November. But uh, office time, domestic stuff, just the time was never quite right. And this whole time I've got this large project that I'm working with Backerkit's marketing team on that is approved. Like I can launch it today if I want to, but I've got to be coordinated with the backer kit to make this work. And it's blocking me from doing a different Kickstarter until I run this thing. So I've got two more Kickstarter campaigns constructed on the site, ready to submit for approval, but I just have to get through this one before I can get to the next one and then get through that to get to the one after that.
0: You can – I think the rules are now if you have four successfully completed and fulfilled campaigns, I believe you can have up to three ongoing Kickstarters at one
1: time. But you can't run them at the same time. You can have them like live like in progress. Oh, yeah. And And, and since this was approved, I can't get another one approved right now because that would – count as two okay live projects this
0: can't be live so so i kind of got yeah. myself messed up okay in that uh like for instance for Zine quest four I, i'm not i'm i've got a i am not i am i have got I know i'm gonna run i'm still writing it but it's still gotta go through editing i get art and so i know that once i launch it it, it still may be four months or five months but then I have some other things I was wanting to do, but I can't do it now because I know that's going to clog up. I don't want to run these other ones now because in the end of the year, yep. I don't want to do it at the end of the year because then I'm all sideways with getting money and then paying taxes on it and then yep. having the expenses next year. And so it's like I should have done a couple more small ones that I could do. I should have done those earlier this year then I would have had my four and then I could have, cause I've got one that's really close, but I know it's going to get fouled up because of, 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 uh, Zinequest four, it's going to delay that one. So it's just like, right. that's annoying.
1: Well, um, uh, one of the ways I think I'm going to finally hit my goal of running and like, I want to run and deliver 12 projects in one year on Kickstarter. And I think one of the ways I'm going to do that is by making a couple of projects where all the work's done in advance, and the only thing I'm offering are PDFs and drive-through RPG uh, print-on-demand codes. That way, I can deliver like the second the campaign closes successfully, I can message out all the different codes to people, and official project is done and like finished before I even get the Kickstarter funds.
0: Yeah, I think but that's definitely by far the less headache
1: way of going about it. The guys at Ian Publishing, uh, Russ has done an awesome job with some of those projects where the campaign ends and within like five minutes, he's done. Yeah. Everything's like a dollar backers and he's like, I'm out, it's over. <laughs> and I, I want to do that. I think that would
0: be... Awesome. Yeah, and really the cost, you know, the cost of... You know, I know you're not paying it because you're just doing coupons. But the, the, I think the cost of it, it doesn't to me the cost of the print-on-demand can be as, as uh, can be cheaper than the ones from Mixum. You're not getting necessarily the same it, quality.
1: Yeah, it depends on the exact title, and the quality definitely isn't as good. Um, I, my biggest complaint with print-on-demand is the lack of saddle stitch because. Glue binding is meh, like I'm not a fan. That's it's it's fine until it isn't. Yeah,
0: <laughs> what happened to my books? <laughs> it's like
1: it's, I either want a sewn hardcover, like a nice quality binding, or a saddle stitched, and I'm just not a perfect bound fan anymore. But, but I, what
0: is do I do find amazing
1: is that the print
0: on demand prices actually are it used to be. I think. I may be wrong, but it seemed like print on demand used to be very, very expensive. But now it's actually a very reasonably priced alternative. So it's really not it's not costing the customer more money to have print on demand for no. the backer. It's but it it and it may actually could be cheaper for them, really. Depends how you do it. Yeah. But I mean it's just it's but the problem is it's not quite the same experience. And I think we're kind of liking to have a little more control of. I guess you still see what they get, but it's definitely a different kind of product.
1: The biggest mistake I see made repeatedly with print-on-demand is not using a wide enough uh, margin in the gutters and getting that type just too close to that center. (laughs) (laughs) Because then people try and, like, force the book flat, and then they break the spine and it becomes a mess. But, like, um, this one is uh, drive-through RPG print-on-demand hardcover. And they did the. It's a black and white book mostly with some spot color, but they offered it as yeah, like uh, you can see a little bit of color there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they offered it as a premium color hardcover, which means they used better paper, so it costs a bit more than just a black and white. But it's this is actually one of the better print-on-demand hardcovers I've seen come out of Drive Through RPG. The uh, so. Chaosum, they do this thing called the uh
0: they have called the Jones Jonestown compendium. Okay. It's, it's their open, oh my goodness, it's their uh, basically where they license out to people to print. Go look at Chaosum's Jonestown compendium. They got some crazy stuff that people are putting out.
1: Is that and, is that the older uh I think they've been doing it for a while then, haven't they? Because like if I wanted to create something yeah, I could submit it to them, and then they would do this process.
0: I think you can just do it your own. The people oh, are just doing it. It's I think Jonestown. It's Johnstown. Jonestown. Uh, they came out with one. It's I think has to do with like uh, combat and Glorantha. They kind of did like a. It's just beautiful. You, if you could look it up, you can go to the Facebook page for RuneQuest, and but they they made it like. You know, like the books where you look up uh like ancient armies, what they wore, how their tactics were, the equipment that they use, the the steeds that they use. And it's it's I mean, it's just beautiful. And there's a lot of people, and that was put out, I think, in a forty dollar print on demand hardcover, and it just is absolutely it looks beautiful.
1: So it's uh on drive through. it's one of the community.
0: Yes. Huh. And it may actually be it may actually be on the top seller too on Kickstarter at the moment. On Kickstarter? I'm sorry, drive <laughs> <I> through.
1: <laughs> the brain is going. So there is a, and and they've got an entire like uh, community creator, tool or system at drive through, aren't they? Yes, and that's I think well, part I'll of probably- it. Community content programs. Miskatonic Risk Repository. Johnstown Compendium. So that yeah. one is for uh, RuneQuest, I take it. Yes. Cthulhu. Yep. Cthulhu's Foundry. Yeah, I haven't. My concern, and it's totally unjustified, it's just crazy paranoia at work. My concern with those community content programs is what happens when the publisher behind that decides, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. Can they just switch everything off and now whatever uh, residual income I was getting from that is just gone? Well, that's why I haven't. Touched oh yeah, the I'm before. sure they can. Yeah, but because unlike TSR, but unlike
0: TSR, they don't. They generally don't own it.
1: Right, but so that means I've created this thing for like the Genesis system or something. Yes, that is so wrapped up in this game engine. Yes, that to do anything else with it, I may as well just create something entirely. Well, new.
0: Well, the the difference is, what I'd say is, if you were to go, my understanding is uh-huh. like, let's say you were to write something for the D and D Beyond or whatever it's called, whatever the D and D thing is, I don't know.
1: Okay, if,
0: if you were to write something for that, they TSR owns. Owns that uh, they own what you just wrote. I mean, they'll still pay you for it, but you cannot take that and go anywhere else with it. Okay. But if you write something for community for the for the Genesis, you could change the mechanics and put it out for a Cipher System, and change the mechanics and put it out for whatever. So there is that difference. But but yes, they could at any time. But you're you know what you're of course you're you're losing you're only getting 50% but what you're getting is um it, it's it's basically marketing you're you're kind of gaining the the marketing for a particular group
1: yeah well, i'm sure my concern is completely unjustified and stupid but it's still what, in my money. There's,
0: you know, I think depending on the company. I mean, there's very little. There's, there's no incentive in my mind other than a company just going bankrupt for them to
1: pull out of that program because it's just free um, money. Uh, some of it could be control. Like Asmodee owns oh Genesis system now. Oh, you're right. They may like. They're uh, currently, I don't know if they've been bought or going to be bought. There's discussions for another large uh, investment group to buy them. And who knows if somebody in that whole chain of the operations is like, this little thing here, we don't like this, shut that down.
0: Yeah. Right, because a larger company may not fully get it or want to deal with it or whatever it may be.
1: Or, Or at some point and totally hypothetical and highly unlikely hasbro's like you know we got to just sell this dnd thing it's, it's it's a distraction it's not worth our time and then they are like well we need to clean this up so we should shut this whole thing down because the rights are kind of a questionable challenge and again i feel i'm unjustified in these concerns but i can't stop
0: well, you, you, the thing is you don't have control and that's, yeah. you know, of, of anything you don't. And actually I'll do is I'll post in the chat. This was, it was called uh, weapons and equipment from RuneQuest, right. I believe is the one, but anyway, they do produce nice hardback
1: books is what it Uh-oh. appears. External link warning. Yeah. <laughs> now <I'm in> <laughs> It says from Chaosium.
0: Oh, then, it isn't, then this isn't the one. It well, then this isn't the one. No, this I don't see. <laughs> no, I think it's part of the. I think it's part of that community project, but still okay. under Chaosium, I believe. I thought I may be wrong. If it's not that, there's another one that was was demonstrated. It may have been a different one that actually was armies. And this might be the wrong one. Well, but well, anyway, they, they do have right. really good PDFs or, uh, like, say, hardbacks. Um, I don't think it, it isn't that one. I was wrong. That is their best-selling one, but it isn't the one I was talking about.
1: Okay.
0: But anyway, I better go. It's a. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to take the first No, no, I just need to. These could go on for hours and hours and hours, and it'd be it just yes. be better to have you. Uh, On more often and just have multiple episodes. (laughs) Okay.
1: Well, thank you.
0: I I really appreciate your time, Phil. And uh, until next time, uh, you take care.
1: Sounds great. You have a great day.
0: Bye. Bye. uh, Thanks. Thanks. I really appreciate you, Phil, uh, coming on. Yeah, no problem. And I would totally do this again sometime. Yeah, it's it's just like you say. It's there's no no set any sort of thing. And it's just, it's just us having a conversation. It's just, there's a lot of interesting things to, to delve into. (laughs) And I find very interesting things like, you know, your past, there's so much, you know, that's, I think a lot of people don't realize a lot of times people can, can gloss over things. That's like, there's really a lot there. I mean,
1: Well, it's like you mentioned uh, me doing stuff pre-blogs, and yes, I was. But then I also ran a blog for about six months, and before I started PDF publishing in two thousand two or so, and that kind of fed directly into the PDF publishing as well because I was learning things. Yeah, I think, I think the I think the
0: Zine community is now kind of taken over for the blogs in some way. I would say from the blog, there's still people doing blogs, but yeah, it just, it just seems like that's kind of uh,
1: it's all blurring together. And and what exactly is a zine at this point is very vague. Yes,
0: I just put it on an eight and a half by eleven. I just called it a mega zine. It was saddle stitched. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I thought about the future ones of just doing them regular size, and people were like, "No, we want them this size." Like, okay. <laughs> like, yeah. Well,
1: I'll let you know when I make a seventeen-inch by seventeen-inch book.
0: Yeah, you got anything on you? If you ever want to talk about anything, you want to just hit me up. I'm also okay. fine with people saying, "Hey, can I come on and talk about this?" No problem. Awesome. So. All right. Have a wonderful day. You too, Mister. Take care.